We open the Holy Scriptures to Esther chapter 7. The reading and also the text will be the entire chapter. Esther chapter 7. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther the queen, with Esther the queen. And the king said again unto Esther, On the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? And it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition, and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, to to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden. And Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. Then said the king, Will he force the queen also before me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And Harbona, one of the king's chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also, the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good of the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. It's some time in the afternoon of the worst day of Haman's life and the last day. Previous night, a most unlikely sequence of coincidences brought about a surprising reversal that this man who was on the top of the world never expected. And in a night, Haman began to plummet down, down, down. Remember the history of Esther 6, what had happened just last night and then the morning of the very day in which the events of Esther 7 take place. 
That night the king had a sleepless night, and that sleepless night led to the reading of the king's records, which led to the discovering of Mordecai's unrewarded deed, which led to the king's indecision. And at that very time, Haman was restless as well, driven by a lust for revenge that he appeared in the king's court at that precise moment and stumbled over the giant rock of his own pride and conceit. When the king, looking to have his moment of indecision solved by his favorite advisor, asked that fateful question, What shall be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor? And Haman, seeing his golden opportunity and misinterpreting the king's words, discloses the grandiose and extravagant honor that he dreamed of for himself. And then the king ordered Haman to carry out everything that he had just said, down to the last word, except to do it for Mordecai, his most hated enemy. And now the morning of this very day, Haman had gotten up, And gone to meet Mordecai. And dressed Mordecai in the king's robes. And sat Mordecai in the king's house. And spent his morning being the herald. Announcing the honor of his worst enemy. And he had gone home. His head covered mourning. Where he found very little consolation from his wife Zeresh and his friends. Who unwittingly prophesied his ultimate demise. And while they were still speaking. The king's chamberlains appeared to whisk and escort Haman off to Esther's second banquet. And that's where the history picks up. In Esther chapter 7. The pace has reached its greatest speed. Haman is swept up in events beyond his control, powerless before them. And the one behind those events, as we have seen, is the unseen king, Jehovah. He was the one behind the sleepless night, behind the opening of the record book, behind the reading of the passage, behind the discovery of Mordecai's deed, behind the decisions of the king, behind the exaltation of Mordecai and the humiliation of Haman. All of that took place despite the intentions and the plans of the human characters in this book. And we saw that great application that comes out time and time again that the unseen king rules and the unseen king preserves and the unseen king works even in the small details to bring justice to his enemies and to bring salvation to his people. And we see that theme continue here. As Esther makes her final move, as Haman hits rock bottom and is executed, And all of it is the Lord's doing, which is marvelous in our eyes. The tables have turned. And now we watch as Haman is brought to his seat at his last banquet. That's our theme, Haman's final banquet. First point will be Haman unmasked. We will look at what the text shows about Haman's unmasking by Queen Esther. Then, secondly, Haman hung, condemned and punished. And then finally, the Lord's deliverance, as that shines brilliantly in the text tonight. So the king and Haman came to the banquet with Esther the queen. Esther's second banquet has come. And the second banquet, as we read about it, at least initially, goes very much the same way that the first banquet did. King Ahasuerus is his festive self. 
He is happy to spend another afternoon and evening eating and washing it down with another banquet of wine. Haman, we can well imagine, was rather glum and sullen. He had to put a face on, but he was still reeling from his humiliation that morning. Perhaps he was looking for a little solace or trying to drown his sorrows in the fact that at least, at very least, he was still the favorite guest of the king and queen. Little did he know, this would be his last banquet. We can be sure Haman couldn't escape that sense of foreboding, gnawing at his mind, the words of Zeresh, his wife, that he had begun to fall before the seed of the Jews, and that he certainly would fall. Well, the king is in good spirits, supplemented by an abundance of wine. And so with eager curiosity, a second time, Ahasuerus speaks up and asks Esther to to disclose to him her request. That's verse 2. And as you look at verse 2, you notice that Ahasuerus basically repeats verbatim what he had said the previous day at the first banquet. Esther, what is your request? And it shall be granted you even to the half of my kingdom. Esther has bided her time, she has been patient, she has waited for the opportune, the right moment, and now that time has come. And here's the big revelation in chapter 7 that finishes the turning of the tables against Haman and against the enemies of the Jews, the enemies of God's people. Esther reveals her request and shrewdly, skillfully, masterfully, Delivers her request in two parts. First, revealing the threat to her life and to her people. And then, only then, unmasking the villain behind that threat. The first part we read in verses 3 and 4. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition, and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Esther's answer here is a masterful use of words crafted and calculated to have the maximum impact on the king. Notice, though her words are full of emotion, it is not out of control emotion. She does not dispense with the court etiquette. If I have found favor in thy sight, she still approaches the king with that courtly flattery. She presents herself as coming with the most humble of requests, barely daring even to ask it of him. And that prepares him for the jolt that is the request itself. If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. In other words, spare my life, O king, and spare the lives of my people. The jolly king with his cup of wine in his hand, must have been shocked and jolted by such a direct, such a personal request, pleading of the queen who was again his favorite, at least right now. 
Esther makes it personal. Spare my life in the lives of my people. The life of his queen was threatened. What could possibly explain this? What is going on? And you notice how Esther shrewdly connects herself to her people. We know if Esther just pled for her people, Ahasuerus wouldn't care. He didn't care about people. He didn't care about consigning an entire people to death that he didn't even know the name of when Haman approached him. But Esther, as it were, connects herself to her people and spreads the wings of her queenly position over them. She identifies with them such that if the king would save her, he must also save her people. For the threat to her is a threat to them, and the threat to them is a threat to her. Though she doesn't name them, this people of hers, she discloses the secret that she has held close for five years. That she's a Jew. And that her people are the Jews. Without naming her people, without naming Haman, Esther makes very clear precisely what the threat to her and her people is. You'll notice as she goes on, she proceeds to quote the very language of Haman's decree. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, to perish. Those three things, destroyed, slain, and perish, are the exact words that we read in Esther chapter 3. She's quoting Haman's decree, and certainly that should ring a bell, should it not? It must have with Haman. You can visualize Haman on the other side of the table in the center of this dining room. His eyes widening as understanding starts to dawn on him. He can't believe it. How is this possible that Esther the queen is bringing up his decree and applying it to herself? Terror is already starting to well up in Haman's heart. And this should certainly ring a bell with the king too, as the one who authorized this decree. In fact, Esther even makes a veiled reference to the bribe that Haman paid to the king when she says, I and my people are sold. That is what had happened. When Haman promised that large sum of silver to help secure permission to exterminate this unnamed people that he despised. And then finally, Esther shrewdly aligns herself with the king's interests and presents herself in the making of her request as simply looking out for the king. And that was very wise because she understood ultimately that's all the king cares about is big me. And so at the end of verse 4, she points out that the destruction of her people would be detrimental to the king. If If it had been something like this, if we were all sold as slaves, I would have kept my peace, I would have held my tongue. But the enemy will not countervail the king's damage. And the the meaning of the word countervail is to counterbalance or offset. What she's saying is, if this happens, there will be no recovery from the damage this will do to the king. Perhaps financial damage, the loss of all of that tax revenue from the Jewish people, that would Not make Ahasuerus very happy. But she also means the trouble, the chaos. That the fulfillment of Haman's decree is going to bring about in the Persian Empire. It's in your best interests, O king, to heed my request. 
And that's the first part of her request. Now, why does she speak in such a roundabout way? Perhaps we ask that. She doesn't name Haman. She doesn't name her people. She is very vague, you may even say, in the way she makes this request. And this is intentional. Esther here is careful to word things in such a way as to avoid implicating the king in all of this. You see, she is treading dangerous ground as she makes her request. This is a politically delicate request because Haman is not the only one responsible for this edict of extermination. Haman was the author, yes. Haman was the one who asked for it to be published. But it was the king who fixed his seal upon it. It was the king who approved of it. It was the king that ordered the royal scribes to work overtimes that copies of this may be distributed to the far ends of his empire. And Esther knows the danger of slighting the king's honor. Though he is guilty as Haman is, it will prove fatal. To slight his honor. And so she carefully crafts her request. Such that the king is not explicitly implicated. In her charges. And Esther's words have the intended effect on the king. They win him over to her side. Before he even knows who she is talking about. Another point of irony how Haman won the king over to his side and secured permission for his edict of extermination without disclosing the identity of the people he wanted destroyed. And now Esther does the same thing. She wins the king over into her favor. He's sympathetic towards her. He wants to hear more about what is happening and who the perpetrator is. And she hasn't disclosed his identity. In this first part of Her request, she kindles the king's anger and wins him to her side before she even discloses that Haman is the perpetrator. Masterfully, her words are used. She knows this Ahasuerus. And so as verse 5 says, the king's anger is kindled. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that durst presume, that is that dares, that dares to presume in his heart to do such a thing as to threaten the life of my queen. Undoubtedly, Ahasuerus was angry about that, but he was more angry about the fact that this was a direct attack upon his royal person. Whoever attacked or threatened his queen attacked him. Irony, again. Remember who's in the room. In this little dining room adjacent to the palace gardens, there's Esther, there's Haman, the king, and the king Ahasuerus roars, Who is he? Where is he? He's the other man in the room. And in fact, the only people in the room besides Esther are the two perpetrators of this evil, the king and his right-hand man. And yet he asks, Who is he? Where is he? Esther will have to tell him plainly. And so that leads to the second part of Esther's request. Now Esther delivers the blow that unmasks Haman and exposes him for who he is before the eyes of the king. 
You can picture Esther thrusting forth her finger and pointing at that man across the table as with potent words she speaks. Verse 6, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. She piles up the charged, condemnatory words, adversary, enemy, this wicked Haman. Describing him as a man of complete moral depravity, of total ruthless self-interest, and a man who is hostile to the interests of the king. That's how she presents it. Earlier in, the, earlier in the book of Esther, Haman has been identified as the Agagite, the Jews' enemy. And that is certainly the case here. That's the most important point here. That's why Haman is so dangerous. He is the adversary of the Jews. He represents the seed of the serpent. He is the tool of Satan being employed for the attempted destruction of the covenant line. But that means nothing to a man like Ahasuerus. The Jews mean nothing to a man like Ahasuerus. Esther doesn't say the Jews' enemy. She says the enemy. The adversary. This wicked Haman. The enemy of the king who threatens the king and the king's interests. And that gets somewhere with King Ahasuerus. Your enemy Ahasuerus who by deception threatens you by threatening your queen. A man who by deception... Tricked you into signing an edict that requires my death. That's treason, you know. That's an attack on the king's honor, you know. And so as verse 6 ends, Haman now is gripped completely by terror. He is unmasked. And all of his plotting, all of his devious scheming is brought to light. And he is utterly without defense. And the text says that he is afraid before the king and the queen. He's utterly terrified. He's exposed. He can't believe it. He can't believe it. He had gotten permission for that decree. He was going to destroy his hated enemies. He was going to get vengeance on Mordecai. And not only Mordecai, but the whole house of Saul. And the whole house of Jacob. He had so successfully won the king's favor. Nothing could stand in his way. And now this. Something he could not have foreseen. That the king's queen is a Jew. He is utterly astounded. Utterly terrified if he had known he certainly would have done things differently but he didn't know and that doesn't matter now the king isn't going to care about his intentions he sees the king he sees the fiery wrath in the king's eyes he is terrified unmasked before the king and the queen and this is the Lord's doing in chapter 4 We read those words of Mordecai. Who knows, Esther, if you are raised up for such a time as this. Here's the hand of God who raised Esther up for such a time as this. And uses Esther in the position that God gave her to bring about great deliverance for God's people. The enemy that threatened them more than any other enemy in the days of the return from the exile, is unmasked. 
Remember, all of these events take place during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, you can read of all sorts of local enemies opposing the Jews as they rebuild the temple and as they rebuild Jerusalem. But those enemies are small in comparison with Haman, the Agagite, the Jews' enemy. He is the greatest enemy they face at this juncture in covenant history. And God works most marvelously using the young Jewish woman Hadassah. Elevated to the position of Queen Esther as his instrument to bring deliverance to his people and preserve the covenant line. Does not God work in the most extraordinary ways? Chose. God is often pleased to use means that men wouldn't choose. Means that people would say, They're not going to be able to do anything. They're weak. And there's a beautiful application there for us. As was pointed out before, those words of Mordecai are true for every Christian at different times in their lives. God raises us up for the time in which he calls us to live. And so it is now. In the church, God works through all different members, using their gifts in the place that he sets them, using them for the good of the church. God doesn't just build the church through the use of the special offices. He does, but God uses every believer, great and small, male and female, whether you think you have great gifts or just small and few gifts. God uses his people for good. And sometimes God works in the most unexpected and marvelous ways using means that man would never expect. And we see that here. And how God raised Esther up for such a time as this. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Esther has unmasked Haman. And now judgment will fall. Judgment that ultimately ends with Haman hung. We come back to the table. Haman Wide-eyed, trembling with fear. Esther has disclosed his plot. And now everything hangs on how King Ahasuerus is going to react to this revelation. And understand, it's not a foregone conclusion. Though Esther has done all that she can to win his good graces, to secure a positive response from the king, it's not guaranteed this man is fickle. This man cares about nothing more than himself. And he is ultimately going to do what he feels benefits him the most. Will he side with his queen? Or will he side with his favorite right-hand man? After all, the book began with the very quick and easy disposal of one queen. Will he do it again? But by the design of the unseen king, Through Esther's disclosal and unmasking of Haman, doom falls upon him and he is caught in his own devices. Ahasuerus is furious. He gets up and he angrily storms out of the dining room, out into the palace gardens. And now what follows in the history is another one of those remarkable sequences of 
apparent coincidences that bear the fingerprints of Jehovah God. Ahasuerus gets up and he storms out of the room. Undoubtedly, the king has finally connected the dots. Haman's edict. I remember that language. I remember signing it. I remember pressing it with my seal. I didn't care who he was talking about. And now it turns out that it was the Jews. And now it turns out that my queen is one of the Jews. Ahasuerus' mind is racing. And he's got a big problem on his hands. He has a dilemma. Because Haman's edict is his edict too. It's his edict too. How can he protect his own honor? How can he save his own face? How can he punish Haman for an edict that he is equally responsible for? We can understand why Ahasuerus bursts out of the room and goes into the palace garden where he's pacing around. Here we see the indecisive king once again struggling to make a decision, struggling to know what to do, how to deal with this political nightmare. And there's no advisors around to solve it for him. Frustrated, furious, he paces about the garden until finally he heads back to the dining room. Meanwhile, as the king is fuming in the garden, Haman is terrified. He saw in the king's eyes that evil was determined against him. He knew the king. Haman knew the king, knew Ahasuerus' temperament. He knew that there was no coming back from rage of this sort. And so Haman sees his only hope to be in begging Esther to spare his life and plead for him before the king. After all, Queen Esther right now has the king's favor. She's the only one that the king will listen to. Maybe, just maybe, she will have mercy on me and speak to the king on my behalf. And oh, how the tables have turned. Merciless Haman now seeks mercy. Hate-filled, vengeful Haman finds himself on the receiving end of wrath so very much like his own. And Haman makes a fatal decision. In desperation, he casts aside the etiquette of the Persian court, which required all of the courtiers to keep a certain distance away from the king's queen, he casts aside that etiquette, and he casts himself before Esther as she reclines upon the couch that was usually used at such feasts. He casts himself before her in order to beg for his life, and he falls upon that couch. Notice here, Haman's wife, Zeresh, her unwitting prophecy is fulfilled. 
She had said in Esther 6 verse 13, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shalt surely fall before him. Now Haman falls before Esther, and it is precisely his falling before Esther that seals his doom. Because at that very moment, King Ahasuerus comes storming back into the dining hall. And what meets his eyes? The scene described in verse 8. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine. And Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Queen Esther was. Then said the king, Will he force the queen also before me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Ahasuerus walks in and Haman is in a very compromised position. It looks like he is making inappropriate advances upon the queen. Now, we know from verse 7 that that was not Haman's intention. Now, Haman was a depraved man and Haman was certainly capable of such wickedness. But that's not what he's doing here. Verse 10 makes clear that Haman was seeking to plead for his life. But Ahasuerus interprets the events very differently. It looks to him as though inappropriate advances are being made. And that only enrages him more. And even as he is enraged, it also gives him a way out of his political dilemma. Here is something Haman can be condemned for. Assaulting the queen. And it need not be mentioned that edict which the king himself had a hand in issuing. Haman here gives the king an escape from the horns of that dilemma. The king had wondered, how do I punish a man for a decree that I myself approved of? This is how you punish him for something else and leave the real reason unstated. After all, assaulting the queen is another capital offense. And so the king roars. Will he force the queen also in the, in, before me in the house? And as that word goes out of his mouth, they cover Haman's face. And they refers to the guards who, it seems, came in with the king after he had returned from the guard. And they cover Haman's face. An indication of shame and condemnation. And remember that was foreshadowed when Haman covered his own face. When he came back from the humiliating parade of Mordecai through the city streets, he covered his face and returned home mourning. And now his face is covered, completely covered. Haman's final banquet. At this point, before we go on to Haman's final demise, a couple of points to see by way of application. First, see the hand of the unseen king again. The sovereign hand of the unseen king who is working both judgment and salvation. Justice is all twisted and messed up in Persia. We see that here. We see that in Ahasuerus. The storybook presentation of the book of Esther gets it wrong. 
The storybook presentation would have us see Ahasuerus now as enraged because of his love and care for the queen and her people, and he wants to do what's right. That's not the case. Ahasuerus is enraged because of how this affects him. He's concerned mostly about him. And that's why he is willing to punish Haman and condemn him for death, to death. Not for the reasons he deserves to be condemned. He deserves to be condemned for his plot against the Jewish people. For that deception whereby he obtained that decree to exterminate a whole people. He was worthy of death for that. But that's not why he's condemned. He's condemned for something else that suits the king's interest. Ahasuerus is looking out for himself first of all. How to protect his own honor. How to safeguard himself. How embarrassing it would be if he had to admit that he had a hand in that decree. Justice is all twisted and messed up in Persia. The king won't take responsibility. And yet, even in this mess, this mess of injustice where the truth is suppressed, God is at work doing justice and bringing salvation. Even in Ahasuerus' injustice, God's justice is manifest. The sovereign king uses Ahasuerus' injustice to justly judge Haman. Haman gets what he deserves. The merciless is shown no mercy. The one who falsely accused the Jews of not keeping the king's laws in order to secure a decree of extermination against them, he is destroyed on the basis of an accusation that is not true. He reaps what he sows. And that by divine design, that is God's truth and justice triumphing over all. And that's encouraging to us in this world of darkness, in this world of sin, where there is so much evil. The hidden works of darkness are brought to light and the God of truth and justice triumphs. And his justice is done even when men corrupt and pervert it. And in this all, God is bringing salvation, bringing deliverance. Again, we see how God is using these so-called coincidences to accomplish that deliverance. The thing that finally secures Haman's demise is another coincidence. Esther 6. Remember the application we saw there? How the great reversal is brought about by a bunch of coincidences. The king's sleepless night. The king's reading of the record book. Haman coming at that exact time. And all of that was directed by the hidden hand of God. Well, the same thing is is the case here. Haman happens to make that decision to plead for his life. He happens to make the fatal decision to cast himself upon the furniture that Esther was sitting on. And the king just so happens to enter the room at that precise moment so that he interprets events in a certain way and Haman's doom is sealed. It just so happened because God orchestrated it that way in his justice and in his mercy towards his people. The decisive event again 
in Esther 7 is what men would call a complete accident. But which we call providence. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And so Haman is disgraced. And Haman is condemned. And now he must go to his execution. And what better way than on a 75 foot pole. Standing in the courtyard of his mansion. One that he built just yesterday. For Mordecai the Jew. That's the suggestion of Harbona. We met Harbona back in Esther 1 verse 10. He was one of the king's seven chamberlains who saw his face. Who continually ministered to him. And now in our text Harbona appears. And that shouldn't surprise us. Even though the king was in a private feast. In a private dining hall with Esther and Haman. His chamberlains were hovering around out in the palace garden, waiting to jump out and come at a moment's notice should the king need them. And so Harbona is here. And perhaps Harbona can even see the top of the 75-foot gallows up in the sky as he looks over the walls of the king's house. And the idea comes to him, perfect. Your majesty, look. Why don't we hang Haman on his own Gallows, the ones he made for Mordecai who had spoken good of the king. Ah, there's another reason to put Haman to death. He was seeking to destroy the man who saved my life. And so the king, with angry words, says, hang him. Verse 9. Hang him thereon. And so, as verse 10 says, they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then was the king's wrath pacified. Poetic justice. No, divine justice. Haman got what he deserved. And in an ironic way, he got what he was looking for. Haman wanted to be seen by everybody. He wanted the eyes of all of Susa, of all of Shushan, to be fixed upon him. And they would be this afternoon. Fixed upon his body, hanging at the top of a 75-foot pole. As we sang in Psalter Psalter 91, by evil are the evil slain. King's fury is pacified. That means appeased, put to rest. And here again, we see how much Ahasuerus is like Haman. They're peas in a pod. What satisfied Haman's wrath? The building of his gallows, the thought of revenge. And same with Ahasuerus here. He's wrathful, he's filled with anger and Getting his vengeance on Haman for causing this problem, causing this trouble that satisfies his wrath, at least momentarily, until somebody else gets him worked up again. But now, as we look at that ugly scene that ends chapter 7, 
the gallows. Haman hung on those gallows. Let's see in that the Lord's deliverance of us. Haman the Agagite, the Jew's enemy, that is, the enemy of the church, the people of God, representing the devil, his host, and all of the powers of darkness, that's all represented in Haman. He is hung on a tree before the eyes of the whole city. Do you catch the significance of that? The significance comes to mind when we remember the Old Testament symbolism. The symbolism of hanging on a tree. Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 and 23. There the word of God says, If a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be to be put to death, thou shalt hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. And now this part. For he that is hanged is accursed of God. There's a symbol here in the Old Testament. That hanging upon a tree or upon a wooden pole. Gallows such as this. Pictures the curse of God destroying a sinner. That man who is hung on that tree is suspended between heaven and earth. He's hung there between the two. His feet aren't touching the ground. And he's not in heaven either. And that pictures the fact that he's rejected and accursed and despised by both. The accursed death of hanging upon a tree pictures the sinner bearing his sin and perishing in his sin. Rejected and accursed. Of God. And that symbol. Would have stood out. To the Jewish mind. Of any believers. There in Shushan. They would have seen in Haman. Their enemy hanging upon the gallows. The curse of God. And in that they would see God's faithfulness. Defending and preserving his people. His faithfulness to the promise. To bless His people to bless the seed of Abraham for the sake of the coming seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the negative side. Remember, God also promised to Abraham and to his seed that he would curse all those who curse them. And God keeps his promise and God keeps his curse. And we see that here in Haman hanging upon the gallows. This is the end of the enemies of God's people Of the church. Going all the way back to Satan himself. Whom God cursed. There's victory. Sure victory to be seen. In Haman's gallows. But now. There's application that comes. More directly to us. To our own soul. As in the text, we see Haman, that wicked Haman, hanging on the gallows. We see where we should be too. We should be on the gallows, shouldn't we? Are we any better than Haman? 
Are we not like Haman in so many ways? Our sinfulness, our pride, our scheming, our treachery against our covenant friend, sovereign, who is not a fickle, self-serving tyrant like Ahasuerus, but is the Holy One, our Maker, to whom all honor and worship is due. We have betrayed Him. We have dealt treacherously with our God. We have rebelled against Him. There are gallows that we deserve, and there are gallows that the law prescribes for us. The sinner ought to be cursed and pushed away from God forever. And our sins have incurred the holy wrath of heaven's king, not the fickle wrath of Ahasuerus, but the holy wrath of the just God whose justice must be satisfied and whose law must be met in all of its demands. How can you and I escape the gallows that the divine law prescribes? Here's where the gospel comes out so beautifully in the text. Haman hung on the gallows. So that you and I would not hang on the gallows. And by putting it that way, it doesn't mean Haman is our savior. Oh no. Haman is hung on the gallows, remember, to thwart the plan of Satan to destroy the line of Christ. Haman hangs on the gallows in order that one day, in the fullness of time, the Christ might hang upon the gallows for us and in our place. Upon that pole fixed on the crest of Calvary. And there's the gospel significance. There's what God is doing. There's what the unseen king is working as he judges this enemy of his people. It's for the sake of Christ and his coming and his eventual hanging upon the gallows of God. For our sins. To take our curse. To make atonement by the perfect offering of himself which satisfies the justice of the Holy One. To be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. Suspended between heaven and earth. Scorned and rejected of men. Rejected of God. We would be Haman. Were it not for Christ. And Haman is hung on the gallows in this history. In order that Christ might hang upon the cross. For us. Because Christ took our gallows. Heaven's king. His wrath is pacified. We have peace with God. We are reconciled to him unchangeably. We have found favor in his sight. And the words that now issue forth from his mouth are only the words of blessing. Look to that uplifted Savior and see in Him your healing. See in the accursed gallows of the cross your curse being borne away. And look from that pole on Calvary's hill up to the God to whom you are reconciled through the blood of His Son and rejoice. That's why we could have this banquet this morning. That's why this banquet wasn't our last. 
That's why judgment and doom didn't fall upon us. And doesn't fall upon us. Because Christ took our gallows. We came this morning to this banquet not to be condemned. Not to have our sins held against us. But we were brought to this table where we find forgiveness and rest. Because Christ went to the gallows for us. Haman came to the table to meet judgment. We came to the table to meet our Savior and be filled with his benefits. And what a banquet. What a banquet we had because of Christ's gallows. Do our hearts swell with the joy of salvation? We tasted that sweet wine of Christ's forgiveness and the hearty bread of his blessings. And now we get up from the table, not terrified, not dismayed, but assured. Assured, because we've seen the eyes of our king. And whereas Haman saw evil determined against him in the eyes of King Ahasuerus, we get up from the table today, and we go forward having seen in the eyes of our Savior and in the eyes of our king, only good determined unto us. Only good and salvation. And we go forward from this banquet, which was a foretaste. Indeed, a sure pledge of much better to come. Because of the gallows of Christ. We look forward to coming to this table again. And again. And again. Until we sit at the table in the kingdom of heaven. At the banquet of the Lamb. Beloved. Because of Christ. That's your. Final banquet. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, apply this, this gospel history to our hearts, that in it we may see the wonder of Christ's saving work for us. We thank Thee that He has taken our gallows and hung upon them for us, bearing away our curse, that we might come to Thy banquet table. And that with the hope of abiding at thy banquet table in eternity future. Comfort our hearts with this truth and send us forth into a new week strengthened to live unto thee. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen.